Hey, happy Friday, everyone. This is Brandon Gare with the National Minority Quality Forum. Again, uh, just trying to have our Friday webinar series to educate and help and give as much information that, as we can in the healthcare space. Today, we are obviously always joined by uh, our very own Mia Keys, who's Chief of Staff to uh, Congresswoman Kelly. And then we have our special guest uh, speaker uh, is Dr. Cameron, well, I always say double Dr. Cameron Webb uh, from the White House who's leading on COVID. I know we have a, we had a ton of questions submitted, so I don't want to take up too much time with the introduction. I'll just turn it right over to Mia. Brandon, as usual, it's great to be with NMQF. Really excited for everything you all are doing and particularly the subjects you're elevating. And today is going to be really quite fascinating for a number of reasons, right? We're talking about COVID, but specifically the new vaccine requirements. And Dr. Cameron Webb, who is not only the White House COVID-19 um, senior advisor with respect to equity, um, and he's on the White House COVID-19 response team. And, and he's also a, a an academician and um, a practicing provider, also a uh, someone who has his law degree. So he comes to us um, for with with a number of hats, um, and he's also a good friend. So I, I feel really very, very much like I'm I'm not working. I'm just having a great conversation with uh, with someone who I, whom I deeply respect. I also have to mention that he's a professor of health equity and policy at the University of Virginia School of Medicine. So we appreciate you giving all of the time today that you have, all of the extra time that you have, Cameron. So uh, I'm going to pass it over to you so that you can tell us a little bit about what you're doing. And then we can go ahead and get started uh, talking about some of the things uh, with respect to the COVID-19 vaccine and the environments now. Yeah, well, thanks so much, Mia. And thank you, Brandon, Dr. Puckern, for the invitation today to join you. You know, this is a, it's a really interesting and challenging time in the midst of this pandemic. And so as, as Mia mentioned, I work clinically uh, in the coronavirus unit at my hospital at the University of Virginia. And so just this past weekend, I worked overnight, Friday night and Saturday night. And over the course of those two nights, I admitted more COVID positive patients who required hospitalizations than I had at any point in the year 2021. You know, the moment that we're in is very different. Our hospital's ICU had to add a fifth unit just to be able to accommodate all of the need, all the patients who were so sick with COVID that they required ICU level care. Uh, we're continuing to see people who get sick. But what's different about this moment is that those people almost overwhelmingly were unvaccinated. Almost overwhelmingly, there are some who who were immunocompromised, but by and large, what we're seeing is, as the president puts it, a pandemic of the unvaccinated. And, and you put that in the context of the structural inequality in our society that led to differential rates of vaccine uptake. And you realize that in communities of color, there's a disproportionate risk of bad outcomes, of COVID causing problems, leading to hospitalizations, and unfortunately, yes, still deaths from this now preventable uh, illness. And so I think it's really important for us to keep that context in mind as the reason for the president's plan that he announced last week. Again, the path to end the pandemic and the six different components that it included. And at the top, I'll just say it was intentional that it started with vaccinating those who are unvaccinated. Our primary focus remains getting people their primary series of this vaccine, getting more people protected. We say in the public health space, and Mia, I know you'll agree, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. We've said that for so long. And so we have some new tools that have come along that are helpful to prevent severe illness if people do have COVID, but we've got to prevent as many people as possible from getting COVID and from having those bad outcomes. So getting people vaccinated remains the goal. Um, you know, certainly there's a reference to the boosters and that's an ongoing conversation that hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about a little bit today, but that's a developing situation. There's the emphasis on schools and making sure that environment works well. I have a 10 year old and a six year old. It's so important to me that we're able to keep them safe because they're not old enough to be vaccinated. I think the president's plan really was focused around, yes, we're gonna make sure when they're ready to get vaccines to five-year-olds to 11-year-olds. But until that time, what are the things that we can do? The layered mitigation strategies, the ensuring that all other adults in that setting are vaccinated, and that's what the president is calling for us to do. And, you know, certainly we're focusing on masking and testing. 
layered mitigation, but also leveraging the testing paradigm to, to be as effective as possible, uh, really supporting and bolstering our economy. And then finally, making sure that we're supporting that healthcare workforce and that, that healthcare space. Because as I mentioned with my own experience, that system has been stressed continues to be stressed and the burden of COVID with this Delta variant is significant. So that's the that's the lay of the land. I know there are a lot of questions and I'm really excited to engage with you all uh, this afternoon, answer some of those questions or direct you to the timeline for when we'll have those answers or some of the resources that are out there. So excited to, to jump into it. And, and I agree, Mia, it's just a conversation just between friends. So let's kick it off. Well, and that's where it ought to be, right? Because a lot of, a lot of what a lot of information that people are receiving, they're certainly getting it from trusted advisors like yourself. And then they finally eventually make decisions after they're able to talk with with, uh, with people within their circle. So I hope that that's the takeaway today. And speaking of questions, I do see that we've got questions pouring in and you're certainly putting the questions in the right spot. Please put your questions in the Q&A box so that I can see it below. And any of any conversation that you'd like to to get going audience members amongst yourselves, put it in the chat. So questions in the Q&A, other discussion points in the chat because otherwise I won't see your questions. Okay, Cameron, I do wanna start with, uh, go back to what you were talking about with respect to the burden of the, of, of the Delta variant, which we know is now the dominant strain that has been for some time, even though there've been other strains that are, strains that are, 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 are um, evolving. Talk to us about what we know about the Delta variant and, and, and bring us back to some of the remarks we were making with respect to those communities that are hardest hit. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think that um, a lot of us will reflect back on this summer. Uh, you'll remember the calls early on, hey, this is going to be the summer of freedom. It ended up being the summer of Delta. And, and the way that that happened is pretty, it's pretty uh, incredible. You know, if you go back to late May, uh, Delta variant made up about 2.4% of the cases of COVID that we saw in the United States. And right now it's more than 99% of the cases. So when people say, well, how is that even possible? It's because it has a series of mutations that allow it to outcompete any other version. And so, yes, we do have other new variants of interest as we categorize them, but none of them have shown an ability to outcompete Delta. It has the right combination of mutations. So the first thing I tend to say to folks about Delta or about any variant is that this happens anytime a virus can replicate in a human host, it can create it. What it does is it makes copies. Sometimes it makes copying errors and often those errors lead to a virus that doesn't work. Sometimes it leads to a virus that works more effectively and that's what Delta is. And so what we've seen is that it's twice as transmissible. You get 1000 times the viral load in a nasal swab of somebody with a Delta variant compared to somebody with uh, with wild type or the original you know, coronavirus. And so this is a problem, you know? And so even, even though the reassuring piece is that our vaccines that we're using, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, have still been shown to be effective against Delta, albeit with some you know, moderately reduced effectiveness in terms of preventing hospitalization and illness, right? It's still, we know that that's still one of our best tools against it. When you look at vaccination rates, though, we know that the vaccination rates in communities of color um, at the beginning of the pandemic were much lower. They've actually caught up significantly. These days, you know, if you look, it's tough by CDC data because we have a lot of missing race and ethnicity data on the CDC data. But if you look at surveys, and we have surveys from Axios, Ipsos, from, from KFF, from Pew, from Bloomberg, uh, we have our own within HHS, across all of those, what we're finding is now we're north of about two thirds of black people who do have, uh, who have been vaccinated, right? And so I think that's good news. Uh, but even still, when you think about one third of that population still being at complete risk, that's higher than in other communities where nationally it's about one fourth, right? Who have not been vaccinated, a little less than that. And so there's still a lot of risk that burden disproportionately falls on communities of color due to a history, a legacy and contemporary challenges with folks feeling like they're able to access spaces equitably, feeling like they can trust the spaces for, for healthcare services, feeling like they can trust the messengers who are telling them they should get vaccinated. You know, a lot of people have, have you know, brought forward the conversation around Tuskegee and even though it's entirely a different dynamic and situation. It speaks to that legacy uh, as recently as 1972 in that instance, 
of you know communities of color being harmed by this medical establishment. So I think that's why all the work has to be uh, on building and gaining that trust. And it doesn't happen overnight. The last thing I'll say is I say this all the time. Uh, you can point me in the direction of somebody who's currently not ready to be vaccinated. You can say, Cameron, bring everything that you know, all the hours you spend on this to a conversation with this person and convince them to get vaccinated. And what I'll tell you is that even with my medical degree, my law degree, my role in public health at a major university, my work in the White House, having access to all of the data, it's very unlikely I'll convince that person in one conversation. Right. It is a series of conversations. It's a series of giving them time to go back, to reassess, reevaluate, bring new questions. And that's why having those trusted bases and trusted messengers is so important because we have to do that deep work of undoing the distrust, the mistrust, and the misinformation that persists. You hit on three significant points there in, in, in your comments. Equitable access, trustworthiness of the institutions, which does you know have a very serious it does connote back to people um, feeling like they cannot trust right which is a different concept from the trustworthiness of, of an institution and then finally the messenger and whether or not there's opportunity for continued conversation even even if those conversations become contentious or, or there's conflict of, of information i actually want to uh, want to bring up a really very contemporary example I'm a huge hip hop head. I'm really, really large into into all, all kinds of music. I'm a musician, but I'm I'm, I'm also very fond, uh, specifically of hip hop. I am not, however, a Nicki Minaj fan. But Reese, but a lot of people follow Nicki Minaj. And for those of you who are trying to figure out who Nicki Minaj is, she's a hip hop uh, rapper. And recently, she, as as in earlier this week, she she tweeted to her 20 plus million followers that she wasn't going to go to the Met Gala because the Met was requiring vaccines. Um, she also tweeted about one of her family members, a gentleman who uh, got the COVID-19, one of the one of the vaccines and reported that he had, um, he experienced some issues with his genitalia. And then she implored her followers to do their own research, um, but not to be, uh, not to immediately jump on getting the vaccine. So I'm wondering, um, you know, how would the White House or how, how will the White House navigate this conversation, particularly when you're talking about someone with such a huge following and, um, and, and, and someone who, in terms of being a trustworthy messenger, is not a, is not a physician, is not a lawyer, is, is, but very much has the ear, particularly of, of uh, the Gen Z. Yeah, no, I've spent a lot of time this week talking about Nicki Minaj, as you can imagine, and and I think that there are a few a few key points to make right here. Um, you know, one of them is that you know people don't go to Nicki Minaj for their health information, right? That's not that's not who she is. That's not why they're following her. But just the same, her raising concerns or considerations introduces it into uh, kind of the public awareness in a different way, and I think that's particularly uh, important when it comes to misinformation that can be spread, even if her intention wasn't to be anti-vax, which is what she said. She said she's not anti-vax. She actually said she is most likely going to get the vaccine because she's going to need to get it for work to go on tour and you know, segue into what we're talking about, the president requiring uh, employers of more than 100 employees to, to require vaccines. Uh, and, and at the same time, to encourage them to, if they're not getting vaccinated, to, to make sure that they're um, being tested regularly. You know, I think that the way that you have these conversations, whether it's playing out on Twitter or whether it's playing out in a living room with a family member, is that you really focus in on, well, tell me more about your concerns and your considerations, right? And that's, you may have heard, you know, she tweeted about the White House reaching out. And one of our, one of our staff members did reach out to one of her staff and said, hey, would you like one of our doctors, somebody from our team to, to give you a call and talk through some of the things that you raised. She's got over 22 million followers. We're happy to clarify, you know, some of those things that just aren't true. Um, 
just so that she has that information and she can, you know, use her platform in a way that's that's responsible, that's thoughtful, that's accurate. Um, you know, there, there are some details that are just really, really challenging, right? The fact that in Trinidad, they don't even use the same vaccine as what we're using here in the United States. Uh, the fact that there are no reported adverse events of, you know, testicular enlargement as she described, right? They actually, the, the health minister in Trinidad went looking, they went through all of the reported adverse events and they're like, we found zero examples of somebody saying this. And he was frustrated. He said, you know, this is frustrating because we spent time to figure this out because of this tweet that's concerned so many people and it's just misinformation, you know? And so I think that that's where we, we do, I mean, and, and to be clear, as a physician, I can tell you, there are lots of other reasons why somebody may have testicular swelling, uh, particularly a young, uh, you know, sexually active male that have nothing to do with the vaccine, right? Correlation is not causation. And, and certainly as a health professional, we can have those conversations. We can have them thoughtfully. But I think that that's what we have to do. We have to meet that person where they are and encourage them to not only get accurate information, but also use their uh, their their network and their platform uh, to be effective. And the last thing on that, you know, for her in particular, she talked about doing her research um, in, and that's become a really common refrain. People say, you know, do your do your research. You know, I, I went to four years of medical school, three years of residency. When I think of doing my research on an emerging therapy, it means something very different to me, right? It means I'm going to PubMed, I'm digging through the primary literature, I'm looking at the studies, I've taken classes on biostatistics and epidemiology to understand what the studies are actually telling me. You know, what are we actually encouraging people to do when we say do your research? Are we encouraging them to go on Twitter and find other people's stories or talk to loved ones, right? You have to also include what that research means. And that means going to trusted sources of information or talking to trusted, uh, you know, local messengers, whether that's health officials, public health officials, whatever it may be, because not everybody is equally positioned to, to contribute to your quote unquote research, right? I think that, you know, you can, if you approach that the wrong way, you can actually end up consuming a tremendous amount of misinformation, which is why that's become a big thrust of the Surgeon Generals. And so I think that's one thing that I, I really like to harp in on is that, you know, we actually need to add on to that, what it means to do your research and where you can go to do your research in a trusted way. I don't disagree with you at all. And, and at the same time, I think it is important to have conversations with people who, whose, whose opinions right now or decisions right now may be conflicting with, with one's own, right? I think if anything, it really does, as long as people are willing to come to the conversation, come to the table and be amicable and have that conversation, at some point, someone is going to see the light. Right. And, and at the very least, there will be something learned. I do think there's something to be learned from from Nicki Minaj in terms of how effective her her well rather how quickly people did respond to her tweet. Right. If anything, it just shows that someone is watching. And so I'm wondering, and this is a question that the audience, uh, one of the audience members uh, brought up. Do you have rec recommendations? And, and I know you're not a media person, but do you have recommendations on how those trusted entities that have have been deemed as as uh, the place to go to for for credible research, the health health uh, entities, how they can properly use their social media um, and all of their platforms to help bring the messaging along. Well, you know, I think it's it's a great point because you know your local public health department isn't as good at Twitter as you know the local celebrity, the person who became a star and, and is connected to that to that community. One of the strategies is to partner effectively, to lean into somebody's platform and say, "Hey, we'd like to get some really good information out with you." Um, and I think that, that that kind of approach uh, can be really effective when you partner somebody with a large platform, a large reach. And you don't necessarily ask them. You don't. You don't hijack their platform. Instead, you say, "Hey, can can you be the convener of this conversation? You know, collect the questions from the folks who trust you in your own space, the folks who look up to you, the folks who follow you. Collect their questions, and we will answer them on your platform because of the reach that it has. And in addition, 
having really good content that's coming out. So local public health departments, CDC has a tremendous amount of information. We can do this.hhs.gov, a tremendous number of resources that are available. You know, and I think that one of the challenges becomes we have these government sources, these government spaces where we've compiled a tremendous amount of great information. But because there's so much mistrust in government, there's also that concern that, well, it's on a government website. And I think ultimately this is where your physician, your provider, we've done a tremendous number of surveys that showed us that it's actually your doctor that's the most effective, your nurse, your nurse practitioner, your local public health official. Um, you know, those are the people that you're going to say, well, I heard it from them and therefore I feel a little bit better about it. And so one thing that we did is we partnered as the, you know, the White House, we partnered with the National Medical Association, with their president, Dr. Rachel Villanueva. We said, who are some of those messengers? We listed off the the states and the cities where we really needed to reach people. And the NMA went out and found doctors who are NMA doctors in those communities. And we had over the months of July and August, 40 plus million impressions from the interviews these doctors did on local TV, local radio, and local print media. And just getting them out there as a local trusted official messenger saying, hey, I live here, I live beside you. Let me tell you my story of why I got vaccinated, why my family is vaccinated, and, and why our community should be vaccinated. And it's a different thing coming from them than coming from somebody, coming from, you know, Tony Fauci. It's a it's a fundamentally different thing. And so I think that that's one of the great opportunities that we have. Um, can't say it enough. If we're talking about the Black community, use Black media, right? Like it's, it's a trusted voice. And I think that that's one reason why, you know, we have to continue to press to make sure we're getting those messages out through those outlets because people continue to look to those as a, as a, as a source of affirmative truth in the Black community. And so I think those are all some of the mechanisms. Um, often it's underinvested in by local government, by state government, you know, by the federal government. And so I think that's something we've been really intentional about saying, how can we get more dollars in that direction uh, for these purposes? But these are all just pieces of it. Ultimately, it's a both and all of the above uh, kind of approach, but you, you know, uh, I usually tell people misinformation is sticky, right? I mean, Nicki Minaj is treating hashtag Ballgate, like the fact that she framed this around her cousin's friend's testicular enlargement, that became the news, but that's misinformation, right? And so I think what happens is we can say until we're blue in the face, that's not true. That's not how it works. There's no evidence. That's not gonna stick with 22 million people the way the ballgate will. So I think that it's it's so important that we have to overwhelm misinformation with affirmative truth through a multitude of sources. I love that. I hope that that becomes a soundbite when when uh, NMQF uh, on the back end works this this platform today. You know, overwhelm misinformation with affirmative truth. I love that, Cameron. Thank you for that. I want to go back to some of your earlier comments about the president's plan with respect to vaccine. Man, uh, 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 requirements and specifically what's outlined in the path, path out of the pandemic. Can you break that down for our audience? Sure. So, so you know, the first thing is that we've gotten a lot of people vaccinated um, because we made vaccines available. Just access and ensuring that we're navigating various access, a lot of people decided to get vaccinated. Next, we tried incentives. And you remember the incentives that were rolling out over the summer. Um, at the end of the day, because of the Delta variant, we still don't have enough people vaccinated in enough communities to end this pandemic. And we must end this pandemic. And that's where the idea of vaccine requirements comes in. And so what the president thought is if we look at employers, we look at that employment relationship, it's actually the ideal space to frame this because there's a relationship, there's a commitment. The employer themselves wants the space to be safe for their employees. And so that's why this is all framed under OSHA, which has that responsibility for workplace safety in the first place. Uh, and so I think that's where that vaccine requirement came. If you have more than 100 employees, then you're required to you're, you're to require them to get vaccinated or submit to, to regular testing. We talked to a lot of CEOs, uh, you know, both in the creation of this uh, of this policy and as we're moving forward with you know getting the rule from OSHA. But overwhelmingly, CEOs are just like, this is good for us, right? It's good to require this in this setting. Vaccine requirements, to be clear, 
this isn't new. This isn't something that we're just inventing for COVID-19. Everybody who's sent kids to school knows that vaccine requirements are a thing that's been a part of the public health paradigm here in the United States since George Washington. So, so I think if you go back in time, this is something that's been around for a very long time and of course scaled over the last you know, 60, 70 years. So um, some of the most conservative states have some of the most strict uh, requirements in terms of entering school, entering kindergarten. Mississippi was number one in childhood vaccinations for a long time, right? And so I think there's a reason for that. It was because of their mandate, their requirement that kids get vaccinated. That's kind of that first piece. And it's not just uh, those employees, it's what we're doing in healthcare settings to make sure that all healthcare employees are vaccinated. You know, what I think of when patients come into the hospital is I'm wearing my N95 mask, I'm gowned, I'm gloved, I'm wearing a, you know, a contact stethoscope. I'm doing everything I can to stay safe. But also I'm thinking they need to stay safe from us. You know, those of us who are going from room to room with patients with COVID, we need to make sure we are protecting the patients who don't have COVID from what's happening in this hospital. So, so that's not new to healthcare settings to require vaccinations against certain things. Hepatitis B being one of them that we do regularly, right? We have to do testing for, for tuberculosis. Those aren't things the general public has to do, but we have a higher standard in healthcare and this is no different. And so we're using CMS, Medicare, Medicaid to do that. Um, you know, I'll also touch on the large uh, entertainment venues piece because you've seen NFL teams now requiring vaccinations, Buffalo Bills did it, Seattle Seahawks did it, right? Requiring uh, vaccinations to enter their stadiums because when you even see, on the college level, even on the college level, that's exactly right. And it's and I think because it's important to not create to create a sense of safety in those spaces to not endanger patients who are coming. Right, you just don't want those outcomes, and you want to you want to preserve that space because we saw what the NFL was like, what college football was like in empty stadiums, and I think they want to preserve that space. And that's part of what we're doing here. We're aiming to protect what we have. Um, you know, I think that's the the vaccine requirements piece is, is kind of those those components. Um, and and I think uh, and I'll stop there. But I, I just would say, you know, I always encourage encourage folks, you know, a lot of these rules are going to continue to be developed. So if you have questions uh, specifically about, well, for employers, when are they going to see those rules and regulations? We know OSHA is going to be bringing those rules forward over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, they're working feverishly to get that done. We want to get that out as soon as possible. Some employers are saying this is already FDA approved. We know this is coming down the pipeline. We're going to do it now. We don't need to wait because there's a lot of virus in our community right now. And some employees are going ahead and getting vaccinated because they're like, I've got to do it anyway. That which is what Nicki Minaj said. She's like, I'm going to have to get vaccinated anyway. So I think those are things that um, they want to make sure people are aware of. So one of the audience members wants to know then, well, why, why justify those who have had COVID and have antibodies? Why justify them? Uh, why mandate that they also be vaccinated? I'm, I'm going to answer this as like Dr. Webb, the internal medicine doctor. And that's that over the course of 2020, what I saw time and time again was patients who came in for COVID in April or May of 2020, they came back in July or August of 2020 with COVID again. And we said that natural immunity, it, it only lasted a couple of months, especially when you introduce the concept of variant. That's the first thing. They actually did a study in Kentucky and um, they looked at, at folks who had COVID at any point during 2020, and then they followed them throughout the year of 2021. Of course, there were no vaccines until mid-December 2020, but in 2021, there were vaccines. For those individuals who had, all of these individuals had COVID in 2020, but for those who got vaccinated, they were, well, I'll say those who were unvaccinated, they were almost two and a half times more likely to get COVID again in 2021. Right. And if you think about it, I, I think people, because we've seen so much COVID, people may be getting desensitized to the damage that this does beyond death. Right. Long COVID is real. 31% of adults have symptoms that linger beyond four weeks. We're talking about nine months out, people still having symptoms, issues with their heart, their lungs, their kidneys, their brain, right? People are having the fatigue, the mind fog. It's, you know, we're having active conversations about disability status for folks who've had COVID. And for our kids, for our babies, one out of 20, 5% have lingering COVID-19 symptoms four weeks out, right? This is not insignificant to get a COVID infection, not just once, but multiple times. And so that's why we say, if we can prevent that, right? Folks who have COVID who've been vaccinated by and large, it tends to be a much milder infection. Listen, that's not 100% of the time. And it's always newsworthy when somebody who's been vaccinated 
get sick, right? But we saw in the earliest days, efficacy was 95%. That means one out of 20 people will still get sick. These days it's closer to 88, 90%. It means one out of 10 people will still get sick. But for the majority of people, the great majority of people, they're very well protected. And that's why we're having this conversation about boosters. How do we keep that strong protection in place? And so I think the natural immunity piece, it's helpful. I would say if you're within the first two months uh, post a COVID infection, yeah, you probably still have some natural immunity. Once you get beyond that, all bets are off. And, and that's not even speaking to potential variants that can evade or escape the natural immunity that you've developed. So there's some benefits to natural immunity. There's some benefits to the vaccines. We talk about, um, you know, polyclonal antibodies. So, so certainly making sure that you've got lots of the, the antibodies to different aspects of the virus, that's a good thing. And natural immunity does afford that. But the thing is, it just doesn't seem to last quite as long. We have plenty of data that tells us that even though we're talking boosters, the vaccines far outstrip the protection that you get from natural immunity. I want to I want to pivot to the booster conversation, but I also want to briefly touch on uh, monoclonal antibody infusions. Why why do people feel like they can substitute those for a vaccine? Yeah, they, they can't. So I want to I said this in an interview yesterday. Um, I do a lot of interviews down in Florida because apparently the governor down there is, is at loggerheads with our president. I think that the issue here is not that we have any problem with monoclonal antibodies. I am a strong proponent of the use of monoclonal antibodies. They're part of a paradigm. If you are, so, so the vaccines themselves, I call that our dose of hope, right? That's our way to keep you from getting sick, keep you from being hospitalized, keep you from dying from COVID. You get that vaccine, you've got some immunologic protection. That's your dose of hope that you're not gonna be impacted by this virus the way that you know over 660,000 people were. But the monoclonal antibodies, I call those our dose of help. And, if that's, and what that means is if you have a COVID-19 infection, a mild to moderate COVID-19 infection, and you're at risk for having a severe outcome, then the monoclonal antibodies can decrease the likelihood of a severe outcome by 70%. So in my hospital, when people come in and they're like, oh man, I'm not feeling well, I'm feeling a little under the weather, I'm not short of breath, I'm not hypoxic as we call it, you don't need supplemental oxygen, but I'm just not feeling my best, I got tested, I'm COVID positive, what do I do? Well, I say, we should go home, you should quarantine, you should isolate but you should stop by the COVID clinic first and get a monoclonal antibody infusion because it's gonna decrease the likelihood that you have a bad outcome, especially if you have hypertension, diabetes, you know, chronic kidney disease, heart disease, any other conditions, obesity, they can lead to a risk for a worse outcome with COVID. And the, for those people, it's a 20 minute infusion, uh, then they're monitored for a little bit afterward, but 20 minute infusion, and 70% reduction in hospitalizations and deaths. So it is effective, it is a good thing. But I said this at the onset, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? And so we will take a vaccinated person 10 times out of 10 before I take somebody who's COVID positive and got a monoclonal antibody. If you asked me for my mother, for my father, for any loved one, what course would I prefer for them to be vaccinated or for them to get a monoclonal antibody once they get COVID? 10 times out of 10, I prefer that they're vaccinated to prevent any of the potential harm that could come to them through COVID. It's not even a comparison. It's, they're both important parts of the response. They're both important parts of the paradigm. But again, I wanna be very clear. You can't do that without vaccination or else you're just going to be overwhelming your healthcare system and you're gonna suffer a lot of illness, a lot of, of bad outcomes by relying solely on monoclonals. I think that's to your point. It's a part of the continuum of, of care, the help, the doses of help, and the doses of, of hope. Do both, if you know, for sure, because obviously the vaccine is certainly closing the loop in terms of who is exposed to COVID. But just because you're vaccinated doesn't mean you cannot contract COVID. So we want to keep up hygiene. That's a part of the continuum of COVID nineteen hygiene. Keep in 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 loop with understanding the monoclonal infusions and the roles of that place, but ultimately you're talking about vaccinations. Sure. And Mia, I, I just have to add, these things, oh, right? Yeah. Like we, you know, I think that 
there was this narrative publicly that uh, Americans were so eager to throw away their masks. I want to be clear, that's not all Americans. Mm-hmm. My, my mama, you couldn't convince her to take off her mask, no matter how many doses of a vaccine she got, Brenda Webb is wearing that mask, mm-hmm. right? And the reason is because we know that nothing's perfect. We know this virus is serious and significant and masks are a simple enough thing to do, assuming everybody has access to them, to create a barrier to prevent you from getting sick. Mask wearing has a, from a data standpoint, there's strong evidence that if both people are masked, the risk of transmission from the infected person to the uninfected person is significantly lower. So, yes. and so masks are a really important part of that paradigm. I know, I know that you you know that very well, mm-hmm. but I just want to remind everybody, right? As they're just like, oh, I've got this protection. Don't take your eye off the ball. It, it's like boxing. I remember when when Floyd Mayweather beat some guy up at the at the buzzer because the guy had his hands up and uh, and Floyd just two pieced him, right? Well, at the end of the day. Floyd said in the interview, they're like, that was kind of messed up. He's like, first rule of boxing, protect yourself at all times. The same is true with COVID, right? We're in a global pandemic. Over 600,000 people have died. If you think we're not still in the middle of this match, then you're wrong. Protect yourself at all times. And this right here, these masks, an easy way to protect yourself. It's easy. And really, we need to embrace that it's becoming a part of our American way of life. I lived abroad for about four years in in both South Africa and Southeast Asia. And all through Southeast Asia in particular, it was very clear, especially if you were taking public transportation, the expectation, the norm is to wear a mask. And in a lot of spaces, it was due to pollution. But also people were quite clear about just how close and in proximity one another to one another we, we have been. And we're getting to a point in the US where we have to embrace that level of protection is not something that needs to be resisted. It is a very easy accommodation that we can make for ourselves and, and for our loved ones and for our neighbors. It's at this point, it really is just about being neighborly too. Right. Mm-hmm. I dig that. All right, so Cameron, let's talk a bit about boosters because you've mentioned them several times. Talk to us about what you know what the outlook is for boosters. Do you suggest them in, in your official capacity as a physician? What's the overall guidance on booster shots? Well, well, I mentioned Nicki Minaj took up a lot of, of my airtime this week. Uh, boosters took up the, the other part. And the reason is that uh, Pfizer submitted their data on the utility of boosters on Wednesday. So they submitted that over to the FDA. Of course, Moderna also released some of their data as well. So for messenger RNA vaccines, those two-dose vaccines, uh, the thought is that you know, we were seeing some observational studies that antibody levels were lower after a certain number of months. And if that antibody levels, if those levels were lower and we started to see more vaccinated people becoming sick with COVID, then we might want to give a boost. And Dr. Fauci says something that he's really powerful. And he was just, and I think that I think that he's right on this. It's that it's not that we think you're going to need a booster every six months. I want to be clear on that. It's that this was a new vaccine to us. And just like the hepatitis B vaccine requires three doses, the thought is it requires a third dose to really get that full and lasting immunity. And that's what the idea is. So it's a, it's a booster, that third dose to really do the job. Um, and so the idea here is first, we don't know exactly where the science is gonna land on this. These are the data that were submitted to the FDA just on Wednesday of this week. Today, there's a group, it's a, a committee for the FDA, it's called FURBAC. So it's the Vaccines and Related Biologics uh, Advisory Group or something like that, Advisory Committee. Um, uh, and I think for them, they're meeting to review all the data that has been submitted, not just from the pharmaceutical companies, but also all the cohort studies, also all the trials, also all the other data from across the states and say, what do we know about the utility of boosters here? They're gonna then make a recommendation to the FDA, the FDA administrator, uh, which is Janet Woodcock, she's gonna then make her recommendation. So that's the next step, right? So Pfizer submitted, it goes to Verbach today. FDA is gonna make their decision. If it moves forward, it's gonna go to something called the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. They're meeting next week on Wednesday and Thursday. And so they're gonna make their recommendation and then it goes to the CDC director. So. So the first thing is that the White House talked about boosters a month ago. We had a, a press conference. We said, hey, boosters, we're making a plan and preparing for them. That's not because we were getting in front of the science. Quite the opposite. It was that we were saying, if the science bears out that boosters are necessary, we are not going to be caught flat-footed, right? We, it would be, it would be um, inadequate from the federal government 
if the CDC director next Thursday or Friday says, yep, go time on boosters. And then we said, okay, we're gonna start making a plan. And people are like, wait a minute, you said I needed a booster. Where can I get it? When can I get it? And then states are gonna say, well, what resources do we have? So we've had those conversations over the last month in preparation. Now, if the determination is that boosters aren't necessary, if that's the scientific consensus conclusion, then we're not gonna do boosters. But we just have a lot of data right now that's pointing toward that's probably not going to be the case. The, the, the weight of the data right now is looking like, hey, it's very possible that boosters will happen. So we're continuing to plan and prepare as if they will. And if that ends up being the determination, then we're going to execute on those. And so that's kind of where boosters stand. Interesting tidbit, um, the great majority of folks who are vaccinated are ready and willing to get boosters. Right. 80, over 85 percent of folks who already got the first two doses are like, sure, if I need a third one to stay protected, I'm here for it. Right. Um, we know from the early data that the side effect profile for a third dose is very similar to a second dose. That's what Pfizer says. Said. So so that's good news, too. Um, but at this at the end of the day, we want to wait for the science in this process from Wednesday of this week to Thursday of next week. That is all the scientists, all the experts weighing in. And we're not going to make a move until we hear everything. And I think that's sound. So uh, let's talk about the moves that that are being made, at least through the White House Health Equity Task Force, the COVID-19 Equity Task Force. What are you all prioritizing right now and how are you elevating messaging around those priorities? Well, you know, one of the big things, we talked a lot about vaccines and their role, but we continue to prioritize uh, that, that primary series of folks getting their first shots um, because we just want to make sure more and more communities are protected. Um, and, you know, as I said, you know, one of our goals is equitable vaccine distribution. And even though we have a lot of missing data, so we don't know exactly what percentage of Black people or Latino individuals have been vaccinated, you know, we don't know the exact number. We have some estimates, especially when you triangulate based on survey data. And so, like I said earlier, we think we're probably around two thirds of the Black community vaccinated, somewhere between two thirds and 70%. And in the Latino community, it's probably around 70 to 73, 74%, somewhere in that range. Uh, white communities, high 60s to low 70s. We have, we have several surveys that tell us that we're in that range. If you look at the breakdown and you say, well, for the Black community, um, we know they make up about 10.4% of those who've received vaccines at this point, they make up 12.3% of the population who's 12 plus. And so we're still a little bit behind on equity there. We made tremendous progress, right? But we're still a little bit behind there. In the Latino community, they now, the, the share of, who, of who's vaccinated exceeds their share of the population. So over the last, you know, three, four months, about one in four shots have been going to the Latino community. So what we're doing is we're tracking vaccinations really closely. Not just at these big demographic levels, but at pretty local levels with states, with cities, with communities. And we're saying, what else can we do to get more and more people vaccinated in your community? Because the fact that Vermont's like 85, 90% vaccinated doesn't help you in Mobile, Alabama. So we've got to make sure that we, we have those conversations exactly where they need to be had. So there's a whole vaccine component of it. There's a whole testing component of it. Right? Because, you know, you don't know where testing is. If you don't have the opportunity to be tested for COVID, it's hard for you to do the other things uh, to, to keep yourself, your family and your community safe. And so really getting testing there, really making sure that there's equitable distribution of these therapeutics like the monoclonal antibodies. Right. So uh, in terms of the COVID response team and our equity work, it's making sure that all of these tools, these resources, uh, our path through the pandemic is being distributed equitably to all communities. And when we hear that it's not, then we have these surge response teams and we're able to rally resources to the communities who need it most. And sometimes we're doing that within a certain political environment. We understand things can get sticky because unfortunately, this is a pandemic that's been pretty highly politicized, but it doesn't stop us from saying there's a way for us to help every state. You know, we're doing a lot of work in, in all states to work with state and local officials to make sure they have what they need. On the equity front, we're doing a lot with schools. Actually, next week, I'm traveling with Secretary Cardona uh, and the, you know, the education team because we're meeting with parents and students disproportionately. We talk about the harm of COVID. We don't talk enough about the mental health harm. You know, if you talk about children of color who've disproportionately lost their parents, their uncles, their cousins, their friends to COVID, and then you send them back into a school environment and they're not eligible to be vaccinated yet. And they're in a community that's highly unvaccinated. 
that's traumatic, right? There is a, you have to take a trauma-informed approach to even the school year for kids. And so I think that's something that we're really looking to do. We're really working closely with school superintendents and school districts and, and principals and making sure that they have resources and tools, uh, making sure we're helping to design the safest environment possible so they can communicate that to parents and students and make them feel safer in those spaces. And I think one thing we've learned over this last year and a half I learned I'm not a teacher, right? When my kids were at home, I was just like, God bless America's teachers because my children would not, they would not pass a standardized test if it were left up to me. That's not my gifting. But what I know is that their teachers are, are not only there to provide information, they create a social and emotional well-being environment. And we want to get our kids, we want to keep our kids in that environment. We don't want to hold that space at all costs. And we want to make sure that's done equitably. So that's one of the things that we're really focusing on is kind of the schools piece. Um, you know, I think there's really across this entire response, there's an equity conversation to be had. And one thing that Jeff Zients, who's the equity, or who's the COVID-19 response team director, one thing he says all the time, which I can tell you is very true, is that equity is kind of the center point, the foundation of what we're aiming to do. We know that there's no success in this pandemic without an equitable response because the nature of this communicable disease and the nature of you know black and brown people being the essential workers of our society is that we will not get past this without equity. And, you know, we're, as Dr. King once said, we're kind of tied in a single garment of, of, you know, mutual destiny, right? This is a really important moment for us to say equity has to be the center point and let's operationalize that. So I want to be clear with, with our, our audience what we mean when we're talking about uh, equity being at the core and an equitable response. Can you just break that down for, for everyone? Yeah, I mean, equitable response means across the facets of the response, the, the economic resources that are going into communities, making sure they're going to the hardest hit, highest risk communities. Sometimes we measure that by social vulnerability index. Sometimes we measure that, you know, by, by other measures in terms of impact of COVID-19, but whatever the case may be, to the hardest hit communities, we want to make sure we're rallying the resources that they need. When it comes to the vaccine and its availability, um, it's not just a matter of saying, hey, we made these vaccines, good luck out there. It's, a it's not a matter of saying, hey, we made millions of these vaccines, it's somewhere in your community. We have to remove the barriers to access. I'll give you some tangible examples. We did surveys that told us that in communities of color, the biggest barriers where people were saying they don't have the opportunity to be off of work to get vaccinated, or they didn't have transportation to vaccines, or they had to figure out something to do with their kids. And so we issued rules through the Department of Labor that, that employers had to offer paid time off. We made sure that we partnered with Uber and Lyft, but also local public transit agencies to ensure free transportation to and from vaccination sites. We partnered with groups like Kinder Care, Learning Care Group, Bright Horizons, to make sure that parents and communities had places to drop off their kids so they can go get vaccinated and if they were having symptoms shortly thereafter. You know, those are things that we did to provide true access to vaccines, right? Not just notional access, but true access. And the other one that I would talk about is, is the idea of trusted locations. We hear that more than anything, right? Is that is there a place that I trust? I know you told me there's a vaccine in my community, but do I want to go there to get vaccinated? And that's where we said, well, that's why we're partnering in, in funding community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, you know, local entities, even barbershops and beauty salons who traditionally had a big role to play in the public health space around hypertension, cancer, lots of space, HIV AIDS. And so it's a natural fit for them to be uh, engaged around, around uh, COVID. And we've got over a thousand barbershops signed up at our Shots of the Shop initiative. You know, I've been to several of their events and it's, it's such an amazing space because you know, this is one of those spaces where there's a natural transfer of information, natural conversations that had. It's a, it's a great place to dispel a lot of myths and misinformation. But again, we're leaning into those trusted spaces as well. So again, that's what I mean by equity. It's about understanding the needs and concerns of communities and responding appropriately. And we're seeing kind of the gains in the programs, vaccines, testing, therapeutics, because of the type of approach that we're taking. And I think that that's, you know, certainly, I think equity, I want to be clear, is not a well-developed muscle of the United States federal government, you know? And so um, we are doing and seeing some things in this COVID response that are new to this United States federal government, but hopefully this won't be the last time. We're trying to lay a foundation to build on so the health equity becomes a norm in the way that we do business. And I think that that's, uh, that's one of the, the hopeful, optimistic kind of silver lining moments here is that now we know what health equity means. We know why it's so critical 
let's make it our standard. Exactly. And it's it's very different from equality, which at this point would say everyone receives the same thing. You're saying specifically that needs be recognized, that organizations be held accountable, and that people are given what they need in the moment they need it, not just for immediate re response, but long-term recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. So we've got a, a, a little under 10 minutes here, Cameron. I wanted to to elevate something that one of our audience members uh, is, is, is referring to, and that's geography, right? So NMQF is really big on geographical data and aligning uh, data by zip code and, and, and really mapping that on to um, impact in terms of joblessness and unemployment in terms of poverty rates in terms of chronic disease and, uh, and and acute disease rates and such like that and so if we were to look at at these maps these heat maps that nmqf has you can very clearly see that across the southern corridor in particular you almost always see an overlap of those socially determinate factors as well as those biological outcomes i'm wondering especially because we 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 should be able to to envision that other um, pandemics will hit our shores. Um, what are your suggestions in terms of coalition building and, pre and, and preventative measures and just being ready, you know, being at the ready, particularly uh, in, in answer to the needs of the U.S. South? Yeah. No, and you're raising your voice so that I know this I know. is yeah, well, you know, depending on where I am, that that's the South to some people. But that's once true. I get down to North Carolina, that's, they tell that's me, true. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think I think that um, you know, Mia, you'll remember very well uh, back last March and April when we were talking about what what's happening with this pandemic. What are we seeing in communities of color? The language we all used was it's laying bare all of the challenges, all of those social determinants of health where we're seeing problems. All of those are coalescing to create an undue and increased burden in communities of color. I, I think that what uh, is critical is to take an intersectoral approach to the needs of the South. Um, I think it's bringing people together across disciplines and really thinking from a collective impact approach. What do we need to do to achieve health in our communities? You know, I've been doing a tour um, throughout different parts of the South over the last couple of months. I've been South Carolina to Florida to Georgia to Alabama to, to uh, you know, really just all over as many places as I can go um, to hear and to see to experience kind of what's happening. We talked about affordable housing with with Whip Clyburn down in Columbia, South Carolina. You were se the secretary as well. Right, right. The secretary Fudge was there, and I think that for you know when we have a conversation around affordable housing as a COVID conversation, at first glance people say, well, "Why are you talking about affordable housing?" We say, well, you know, we've got this eviction moratorium right now at the time. And then the reason is that um, because of the disproportionate impact on job loss of the pandemic on communities of color, it's creating more exposure, more cohorting or congregate living, more spread of COVID, right? There's this interplay between all of these things. I think the South has known and seen this for a really long time. The, the nexus between food access, employment, education, housing, all of those social determinants, all coalescing on, on health outcomes. So, you know, when you ask, what do we do next? How do we build coalitions? I think it starts with saying, what are the right, who are the right people to be the voices advocating for health in our communities? In a lot of communities in the South, I was in Columbus, Georgia uh, with Representative Bishop, and we were talking about peer violence and how that was a key component because when young people were out of school because of COVID, there was an increase in peer-to-peer -peer violence. Right. And it's just like, well, because a lot of the spaces outside of school that they typically would frequent as places for them to, you know, let off some steam, those weren't open and available to them. And it created opportunities and moments for conflict. You know, we have to realize this pandemic is touching and concerning all aspects of, of American life, but particularly all aspects of life in the South and all these things then kind of go back on health. And so 
I think it starts with that, recognizing that if you take a social determinants approach, a health and all policies approach to the COVID pandemic, you'll realize who your partners are. And it pretty much is everybody. Everybody in community has a role to play. Then you think across levels, right? At the very local level, what are those relationships with the state, the state level, what are those relationships with the federal government? I had conversations in Mobile, Alabama, where we were talking about mental health and the needs. And then I brought the administrator from SAMHSA, uh, Dr. Miriam Telfer-Rittman, and a lot of the needs that community had, we had resources for them. And she was like, well, I can connect you with, with this grant and with that grant. And the community was like, that would be amazing. That's exactly what we need. A lot of these resources, you know, members of Congress like Representative Kelly have been leading the charge to make sure these things are available for communities for years. but. The rich get richer in the United States so often, and people who are good at grant writing and have a good infrastructure, they are the first ones to get access to a lot of these resources. And so some of it is making sure that we are supporting the infrastructure for communities that have been the hardest hit to get access to the resources that members like Representative Kelly have been so intentional about making available for people. So these are some of the things that I think we need to do. I think the last thing I'll say is don't let this moment pass. Do not let this moment pass where in communities, you know, I heard a, a pastor down in Georgia told me, you know, nobody ever cared about our diabetes, our high blood pressure, our cancer. This is the first time that everybody is coming into our community caring about our health and well-being, and they're saying it, that we need to get a shot. That's their way of caring. Well, I've got some other things I want you to care about, right? And I think that that's, that's the moment. That's the moment that we're in. Do not let the, the infrastructure that's been built to get people of color or rural communities vaccinated, leverage that same infrastructure and say, we need to keep community health workers. We need to keep this health outreach. We need to keep the increased resources going to rural hospitals. We need to keep all of these things in place because we've got sick people. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention um, you know, indigenous populations. You know, That is one of the most overlooked under-resourced, under-supported, uh, you know, demographics when it comes to health. And I think that we, you know, I think we have to do a much better job of, of sharing that story of the work that we need to do to support those communities. Because even still, you know, we're still seeing in some, you know, Native American tribes, we're still seeing higher rates of COVID hospitalizations and deaths. We know IHS has traditionally been, traditionally been underfunded, but yet and still, you know, Congress passed a bill with a lot of dollars for IHS. So how do we hold that accountability? This is where communities have a chance to say, this is what we expect of you, our government at every level, deliver for us. And you gotta use this moment to do that. Cameron, you, you're hitting all the nails on the head here. And I only wish we had an additional hour at least to, to unpack. I, I want to say thank you to our audience members for um, your chat. Uh, there's a lot of chatter there, and I, I'm, I'm going to have to go back and, and look through it and see what resources you've offered one another. And for uh, a number of your questions, we'll also, if we haven't covered them either directly or tangentially, we'll get them to Dr. Webb so that he can chime in and that uh, other staff across NMQF can address them. But Cameron, the last thing I do want to do is check in with you. You know, we've, we've been able to draw from your expertise as a physician, as a lawyer, as a public health expert, as someone who comes to us from the White House task force, um, the, the equity task force with respect to COVID-19, I just want to check in with you in terms of how, how you're doing, you know, as a father, as a son, as a husband, as 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 Cam, as B, B Cameron Webb, you know, how you doing? I appreciate you doing that. Um, and I'll say, you know, I experienced this pandemic through the three Ps, through, through me as a, as a person and as a parent, through me as a provider, as a physician, and then through me as a policy practitioner, right? Those are the different ways that I experienced this. And I just want to take a moment to say that as a healthcare provider, I'm exhausted. You know, as a policy practitioner, it's one thing I know that I just have to keep doing my job. This is a tremendous moment, but as a healthcare provider, um, you know, the waves of this pandemic have been relentless. And I, I raise that because there are people who you are all connected to, who are trying to fight on the front lines to keep communities safe. And this is a different moment because everybody I'm taking care of now is unvaccinated. And so in addition to making sure that they have enough oxygen to manage their COVID, in addition to trying to prevent myself from getting sick, I'm also trying to convince them their family members, their loved ones to get vaccinated. I think that, you know, 
this isn't just the doctors. Certainly, nurses are in those rooms way more than us, and we need to look out for them. My younger sister is a nurse that I know about Fairfax, and and you know I call her constantly, and I'm just like, how are you doing? Are you good? Right. So I think you know Mia, that that you good kind of question is what we all need to be doing, particularly for a lot of the healthcare providers out there. Um, and, and staff in, in uh, hospitals and healthcare systems, um, because uh, because it's tough. We're all tired of this pandemic. We need you all to help us end it. We're going to keep doing our jobs, but we uh, we continue to need your advocacy, your leadership, and your commitment. Dr. Cameron Webb, thank you so very much, my good man, for for visiting with us and uh, and, and speaking so candidly to us and in, in your multiple. Uh, positions here and also NMQF again really appreciate you being of such um, integral character that you you're making certain that our audiences are aware of, of who's out there who are trusted messengers and that we're still pushing you know the points that Cameron made which is equitable access trusted messaging and trustworthiness of institutions so once again I'm Mia Keys and Congresswoman uh, Robin Kelly's Chief of Staff, and always a pleasure to be uh, to be with you all. And hope that you tune into the next uh, and upcoming virtual appearances. I'll turn it over to you, Brandon. I think Mia, you're doing a great job. I'm just going to echo all the comments that I'm reading in the chat right now. Uh, great job to you both, and I appreciate you educating uh, me and our audience uh, about this. Uh, we, like Mia said, we look forward to seeing you next week. Uh, we'll have a topic with Dr. Laura Lee Hall. Um, speaking on again uh, a bit more about vaccinations and auto immunizations because in in you know we have to a lot of us are getting our booster shots soon but we also should be getting our flu shots as well so uh look forward to speaking for you once again thank you dr webb thank you future dr keys and i will see you guys next friday thank you